0: which I need because lately I want to do my hair in like a slicked back look, but my hair's too frizzy. Get 15% off Lola V with the code MOMROOM at slash MOMROOM and Lola V is L O L A V I E. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Welcome to the Mom Room Podcast. My name is Renee Rina and I am definitely the mom friend you have always wanted. This episode is brought to you by GroCo Postnatal Rehabilitation. Let's be honest, when it comes to postpartum care, the majority of mothers are sent home with nothing more than a peri-bottle and instructions to rest. And what is rest when you've just had a baby? mothers are left to navigate their recovery entirely on their own without any insight into how pregnancy or labor and delivery will impact their health in the future. It's absolutely insane when you consider that the traditional healthcare system today provides better rehab protocols for sprained ankles than mothers after birth. This is why Dr. Ali Kane created GroCo. The online community features 50 plus workouts streaming 24 7, weekly live workouts, and monthly master classes. Right now, the program is 50% off for lifetime access. And for the Mom Room podcast listeners, you can save an additional 20% with the coupon code MOMROOM. Head on over to growcorehab.com and sign up. How you heal now will affect the rest of your life. Check out the episode notes for additional details. I love the Friday episodes because I get to share amazing conversations that I get to have with amazing people. And this conversation I had with coach Jackie Power. She's a certified life coach and army officer who works in the organizational psychology branch of the Canadian military. Her daughter Paige was born four years ago with an extremely rare genetic disorder that caused an eye condition called BPES and a global delay diagnosis. Jackie and I have been chatting on Instagram for a while and she reached out to me about doing a podcast episode regarding special needs parenting and I was so happy because I've been asked by many people to do an episode on this topic and to be honest, a lot of the advice and like insights that she shares in this episode can be generalized to just life in general. It's such amazing advice. Jackie currently lives in Montreal with her husband, her daughter Paige, and a house tiger or a cat named Maslow. And they are also expecting their second baby girl this Christmas. So, without further ado, here is my episode with Coach Jackie Power. Today, I'm talking with Jackie Power. She's a certified life coach and an army officer in the Canadian military. Her daughter Paige was born with an extremely rare genetic disorder that caused an eye condition called BPES and a global delay diagnosis. So today, Jackie and I are talking all about special needs parenting. And yeah, it's just going to be like an open, honest, uh, candid conversation. So I thought to start, I would have you just kind of tell us a little bit about yourself and about your family and why we're having this conversation today.
1: Okay. Well, Renee, we're a military family. So we, we move frequently. My husband's in the army as well. Uh, we decided to have Paige about four and a half years ago when I was about 29 years old. Um, and where I come from is a world full of super impressive, fit, smart, motivated, wonderful humans. And uh, my husband and I were both varsity athletes in university. So, you know, I think when you decide to have a baby and you're young and healthy, you kind of think, let's have a baby and let's focus on nursery colors and baby names and cool gear and all the fun stuff. Um, but it never really crossed my mind that anything atypical could happen uh, with the pregnancy. Um, but it did, and I'm glad that it did because it taught me so much about life and myself and my own um, version of success and, you know, what it means to be smart and just seeing the world in a, you know, a series of strengths and weaknesses versus these, you know, black and white extremes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that that's us in a nutshell.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about the process. So did you find out about the genetic disorder while you were pregnant or was it after you had given birth?
1: Yeah, I was at my 20-week ultrasound and I was actually away on military training. So I got my ultrasound done in Barrie, Ontario near you. Yeah. And the nurse on the base there um, called me in for ultrasound results. And I was like, ooh, (laughs) ultrasound results, not realizing that you don't really get ultrasound results. Um, but that was my, you know, new mom naivety yeah. uh, or new pre- new pregnancy naivety. So I go in and, and she had, um, they had found ventriculomegaly. So that's just in large ventricles in the baby's brain. So we knew that that would result in, you know, mild, moderate or severe uh, developmental delays, but not quite sure how that would present once she was born.
0: Okay. So then after she was born, then I'm assuming they did testing or there was some kind of testing done to let you know kind of what was wrong and what the like how you would move forward.
1: Yeah, exactly. So I think anyone in a similar situation, like typically you get referred to the maternal fetal medicine specialists, with our, which are um, OBGYNs that have, I believe, for about four more years of education in abnormalities. And then you get uh, the level two ultrasound, amniocentesis, um, and some other testing like that. And then you get genetic counseling. So as soon as Paige was born, the genetic counselors were in our hospital room. And she was born with her eyes closed, actually. Um, so the, the muscle, the lavatory muscle that opens up your eyes just didn't develop properly for her. Um, so that's how we knew that, you know, something, something, you know, resulted from the ventriculomegaly. Um, and then we went through a bunch of blood tests with the genetic counselors at the children's hospital in Ottawa called Cheo And it was a microarray that found her genetic deletion syndrome.
0: Crazy. Like, it's true. Like you said, you Isn't don't it? think about this. And. There's probably so many, like, this is one specific case, obviously, but there's so many people that go through situations like this. And, like, you must have been, like you said, you, like, were an athlete. You didn't expect anything like this to happen. So what was your initial reaction like how did you process this
1: yes I talk about this a lot with with all my friends and you just you just totally go into the grief cycle so you know if you're familiar with it I think we often think about grief as it pertains to death or like the loss of a loved one but for me grief turns into like the loss of an expectation or a dream or something that you thought was going to happen um Mm -hmm. so the grief cycle you know it looks like shock and denial you know then some anger some sadness some bartering acceptance and then you know returning to a meaningful life so you know, the shock and denial really set in for me. Like I, I just ignored it. Like my husband talked to the doctors and I I say it in my blog, like it was like in a movie where there's like a beeping sound and you just block out and don't pay attention and block everything out. Cause I had to learn how to be a mom. Like I didn't have time to focus on this. I had to learn how to feed my baby and take care of her. Um, and I couldn't, I couldn't look at the paper that had the diagnosis on it. I just ignored it. So I think that was my shock speaking.
0: Right. So did you feel almost like you were in denial? So you didn't because like when I think about me, my instinct is always to like Google and find out as much information as possible. But in this situation, like something that is this upsetting initially, did you find that you were kind of avoiding finding out more information and you were just kind of like you said, like putting your head down? And like focusing on having a new baby. Yeah, absolutely. And I was in such denial. So, you know, the poor
1: kid's eyes were closed. She couldn't see. Um, But I was like, oh, no, they'll open up. Like give her 10, 14 days. Like we'll be fine. And then, you know, when we started going into the hospital to talk about whether she was going to need surgery or not or what that would need, I'd be like, nah, she's not going to need surgery. And then I was like, okay, yeah, she needs surgery. So, you know, let's accept that and, and wrap our heads around that. And then I think I thought, you know, and I feel... I'm not ashamed to say this because it's part of my journey and I'm being super honest, but I think I thought, okay, well, if she gets her eyes, you know, fixed, which is a tough word as well, then she'll look normal, which is a tough word as well, you know? And then I thought, okay, then she'll be normal and then she'll get on with life and it will be okay. And it was just like a birth defect or whatever. Um, but then, you know, shortly after she had her surgery and it was very obvious that she still looked quite unique and, and wonderful, um, But, you know, I have to caveat that, like, I always thought that she was beautiful and perfect and awesome. And it really upset me that her face had changed so much. And it still upsets me that she's going to have all these surgeries on her eyes that are going to morph, you know, the way that she looks. Um, But, you know, I was in the spirit of allowing her to see better and have her vision develop properly. So, you know, it was the right decision.
0: So when was, how old was she when she had her first surgery? Three
1: months, like exactly 12 weeks.
0: Oh my goodness. But then, you know, you continue on with the grief
1: cycle and you get into kind of the sadness. And things, and things occur to you. So again, like, I don't, like my husband and I, and a lot of our friends were quite, you know, average looking, typically developing people. Um, So just kind of really absorbing the fact that Paige was going to look different and what that might mean for her life. Um, You know, and I'm super optimistic that we have such an enlightened and open world, especially nowadays, and our kids are being raised to be so kind in the middle of a civil rights movement and all these wonderful books about loving yourself and, um... You know the feminist movement and things like that, Um, but at the same time, you know, I I, was—it does make me sad to think that she might be ostracized or treated differently for the way that she looks, and she does get stared a lot everywhere that we go. You know, still.
0: So is she? She's starting school because I know you had mentioned that she has—I don't know what you would call it—like a a worker that works with her. Yeah, yeah. What's that called?
1: We call it a resource worker, or like a one-to-one, a resource. Yeah. Okay.
0: So is that is she in school or is she still in like child care center? Yeah.
1: So in Quebec, kids go to school at five years old. So she'll be going to school next September. Um, and then she's got a one to one resource worker at daycare.
0: OK. And so what's what's their role in her um, her day? Like what do they do?
1: Yeah. They basically shadow, they call it a shadow. So she shadows her around and helps her stay safe because Paige is a little bit, you know, wobbly. Okay. Um, her, her motors, her motoricity isn't quite there. Um, so she helps keep her safe. And then normally we do some goal setting for some things that we need Paige to work on. So right now it's, you know, holding a pencil and drawing circles and lines Okay. because she's got low tone and that's the foundation of like writing letters and learning how to write. Um, So they'll work on some of those goals. And then um, toilet training is a big one. Paige just got toilet trained in the last week. Um, So she'll help her with that at daycare as well.
0: I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about, because it is a rare genetic disorder, kind of what that means and a little bit about, um, I guess, chromosomes and how this comes about.
1: Yeah, totally. So the human body is made with 23 pairs of chromosomes. And in those chromosomes, you hold genes in two different arms. You have the P arm and then the Q arm. So typically when your babies are formed or when you as a human were formed, um, you receive a copy from mom and a copy from dad to form these pairs of chromosomes. And any time that the chromosome um, makeup is altered in any way, so whether that be a, a deletion like Paige has, so she's missing some copies, a duplication, or you know a condition like down syndrome where that's a trisomy like trisomy 21 it's a, it's three copies of a gene anytime that there's any kind of you know um inconsistency or a, a abnormality with your genetic makeup that's going to cause issues throughout the body
0: so and this is what they're testing like they can test these things while you're still pregnant, like which is mind-boggling. Through a blood test.
1: (laughs) Wow. It's insane. Yeah, it's super impressive.
0: This episode is brought to you by Magic Spoon. You guys know I have been very intentional with what we've been eating lately. I'm looking at protein, I'm looking at sugar content, and avoiding things like artificial ingredients or colorings. Simplify your kids' mealtime with 30% off your first order. Go to littlespoon.com slash momroom and enter our code MOMROOM at checkout to get 30% off your first Little Spoon order. I'm assuming there's a ton of genetic disorders then because there can be so many different like abnormalities in this set of chromosomes. Absolutely. Okay. And... When we were thinking about what to discuss in this episode, you had mentioned that you wanted to explain to people who are maybe in a similar situation how to use a diagnosis and not necessarily as a crutch, but as, you know, a ticket to getting resources and support. So what would you tell people who are in a similar situation? Yeah,
1: absolutely. So the diagnosis is a really good thing, but we don't want to, you know, label our kids as that. So, you know, I like to say that Paige, like she loves Disney princesses and she lives off of cheese cubes and applesauce, but she also happens to have a rare genetic disorder. So it's not something that defines her, but it's this wonderful key that unlocks the door to the wonderful, like provincially funded resources. So such as, um, occupational therapy, speech, physiotherapy, psychologists, and more doctors. And it's wild Renee. Like once you get that diagnosis from the geneticist written on a piece of paper, it is like a golden ticket for everything that you need, and you know I really feel for the parents, especially my my friends with um children with autism, because it can take up to two years for things to really present and for them to get that diagnosis, so they're just kind of floundering, you know being worried parents mm. you know do i what should I do with this, and you know resources are expensive, and not everyone has the money to pay one hundred and forty dollars for a speech session or an o t session privately or. Um, maybe their private health insurance doesn't cover it. So having that diagnosis is just your, it's your golden ticket to resources. It is not a label or a crutch or anything to just like, you know, fall into as a a limiting
0: factor. And so people that get a diagnosis like this, is it like, do you have to go out and seek the resources or are they kind of handed to you? Like, are you referred to people?
1: Yeah. So it's 50, 50. So the hospital can be really good for getting you in touch with like a social worker system. And the social workers are super helpful um, because they'll put you in touch with all the community resources and get all the referrals and all the authorizations done for you. Um, So we had a lot of home visits from our social worker um because t- we didn't know I didn't know what the speech programs were in my tiny little army town near Petawawa Ontario like what we were entitled to um so typically it's a social worker that really helps you uh, but at the same time like you have to do your research like you have to be organized like i find being a special needs parent it's like a mini part-time job where i have this like box of you know letters and diagnoses and diagnoses and authorizations for for different people to talk to different people and you know, all these different appointments to coordinate with these six doctors and four therapists and the one-on-one at daycare. And it's, it, uh, it certainly feels special some days. You
0: know, even with Milo, I just happen to have a good friend who's a speech language pathologist. And when you have a child, you have no, and like, I didn't really hang out a lot with friends that had young kids. Like I wasn't familiar with, you know, developmental milestones and all these, all these things. So, even with milo and his speech i wouldn't have pinpointed that he was behind in speaking but i just happened to have a friend who's a speech language pathologist and after talking to her i was like oh shit <laughs> and it like that's how i felt i was like uh, like why would i know these things yeah how so would unless you? exactly and so unless you're like i had no one to compare him to i wasn't around toddlers i wasn't around babies um and so it's like unless you're seeking out the information it's kind of like totally well I don't even know where to begin and I imagine it's like times 10 when you have a child with a genetic disorder or with autism or you know like you have to kind of like you said it's like a part-time job to figure out exactly what you should be doing and who you need to meet with and yeah I remember saying specifically to my friend like how are parents supposed to know this stuff? <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: I, I feel so much for parents because we get so much conflicting information, especially when it comes to milestones. So, you know, you as the mom or the primary caregiver, you could really notice something in your kid that's concerning. But other people would be like, oh, no, you know, every kid just learns at their own pace or, you know, a grandparent or an aunt chimes in like saying this is concerning. Um, you know, and milestones, I actually think they're great. I know that they're a touchy subject. Um, the thing I don't like about them is that they're not human constructs. So it's not like this is what a human being should be able to do at eight months old. They're very North American or Canadian driven, especially the developmental milestones. But again, it's just a ticket to resources and it's a way for us to know, you know, is there something that we could be doing? And I know for me, when I first started doing developmental work with Paige and learning how to do it, I felt like a stage mom. Like I felt really weird. Like I was trying to make her do stuff to like overperform, like, you know, a six year old in like an Olympic gymnast program or something like I literally like, like I had to take her arms at like around 14 months. She couldn't pull up to stand yet, which is fine. But I had to like take her hands and plant them on the table and then like lift up her little hips and then grab her knee and bend it and plant her foot and like guide her to lift up. But as soon as I showed her how to do it, then she did it. But she just can't figure out those things on her right. own like some other kids can. So, you know, my advice to parents that are worrying about milestones is I think you kind of have three options. You can either number one, chalk it up to the fact that kids learn at their own pace and it's no big deal Two, if you're seriously concerned, consult your pediatrician and just bring it to their attention just to track it and watch or three, like don't be afraid to get on the floor and really play an active role in your child's development. So, you know, maybe at eight months old, if your your child isn't sitting yet, but you're the type of family that what really works for you is spending a lot of time in the carrier, the stroller, going for walks, or you have other kids to take care of totally get it everyone's you know element and lifestyle is different but perhaps you know putting some pillows on the floor to prop them up and putting them in a little tripod pose or doing some like row your boat back and forth to build their core strength just doing like some really gentle fun you know just more developmental play activities can be really really beneficial and and it's actually like a lot of fun like I'm so grateful that I've learned all these great ways to talk to my child better and and develop her and I always play with my my friend's kids and in a, in a fun way. So, you know, it's a cool skill. It's a cool skill to take on.
0: It is. And that's, that's part of the, you know, if you don't know, then you don't know. But as soon as, you know, my friend was like, well, instead of talking to Milo in this way, like instead of always asking him questions, try just pointing out objects and, you know, changing the way that we speak to him has completely exploded his his verbal skills, but we didn't know because I'm not a fricking early childhood educator. Like I don't know how to talk to friggin' toddlers. So as soon as you find out, and it would be the same thing, you know, with physical um, skills in a few weeks, I'm going to be talking actually to um, a pediatric uh, physical therapist specifically about milestones and how people can work with their children if they think they're behind and, you know, walking or pulling themselves up. And it's such valuable information because yeah. if we don't know then we just don't do it but it's usually these simple little changes that you can make or like you said you were you just had to show her how to do it and then they can do it so yeah I, I like as soon as you're pregnant you should just get this big handbook that's like
1: <laughs> here's all these little basic play.
0: things yeah
1: yeah but being a parent is hard and you don't want these kind of therapeutic things to take over your life either and it's kind of like you talked about with your, your screen time philosophy, like it's just only bad if there's an absence of other, a variety of activities and like well-roundedness in the kid's life. Yeah. So it's also important to, you know, just play and have fun and understand that like kids are learning from so many different sources, whether it's daycare, the car ride, trying new foods, watching a pretty cute show that they like doing some developmental stuff. Like we really had to work hard to not make it take over our lives. Yes, And then, you know, I really had to set my boundaries in the beginning. I just felt like I should take on anything that they gave me and let anyone in my house. And if I had these resources, I just had to say yes and push off work and, you know, just accommodate. Now I'm at a place where I'm like, okay, no, I know what she needs. I know what works. I know what our family needs to stay healthy and happy. And thank you so much for the wonderful resource. I'm so grateful it exists, but we can't fit that into our life right now. Yeah. And uh, But it took me a solid four years to be okay with that.
0: Yeah. And I, I can see how people would just completely have these things, like you said, take over their lives.
1: Totally. And I've had moments, too, where I was like, oh, my gosh, should I quit my job? Like, I shouldn't be working. Like, I'm not doing everything that I can for her. And, you know, we talk about mom guilt and stuff. Like, I, I think I got over that around the two-year mark where I was like, you know what? I don't have time for this. I don't have time to feel bad. I know I'm doing everything <laughs> that I can for my kid. You know, she has unconditional love. She's going to have chores and, you know, she's a wonderful family who loves her. She's Canadian, for goodness sakes. Like, she's going to be okay mm-hmm. and, like, we're going to be okay. So if yeah. I can't take her on the stairs every day to, you know, climb up the stairs with her left leg, like, she's going to figure it out at some point and, and it's okay. Yeah. And, you know, that's another part to it too. And I don't know if this sounds like, you know, negative or, you know, limiting to her, but something that I had to describe to our family is, like, she's not going to grow out of this. Because, you know, they're optimistic too. They're like, wow, she's doing so well. Like, she's doing this and this and this. I'm like, yeah, she is. She's awesome. She's a great little person. But she does have a severe intellectual delay. And she's going to be a very vulnerable adult who's likely going to live with us forever. Um, But yes, she's amazing. And she's doing great. But it's not going anywhere. We're not going to wish this away.
0: Yeah. And that's kind of comes along with acceptance, I I guess. Like once you get to that point, then you're just able to look at things realistically and, you know, celebrate all these positives, but not like you said, wish it away, which is, I'm sure once you get to that place, it's a lot, you feel at peace almost.
1: Totally. But like Renee, I couldn't even talk about her publicly for like probably the first two and a half years without getting choked up in some way. For sure. It took a long time and I'm still, I'm still pretty new to motherhood. I mean, she's just about five years old now. And, you know, I've had my moments like in the grief cycle with, you know, anger, like I've had some less been uh, respectable moments. Like, you know, we have a social worker now in Montreal and she just came to our house once and she was kind of like cold to Paige and Paige wasn't really having the best time. And we just didn't really connect. And she always calls a check-in and I just don't call her back. Is that, is that bad? Should I not admit that on a podcast? It's fine. It's (laughs) fine. At least you're being honest. Yeah. I mean, I'm at a point, yeah, I'm at a point where I'm like, you know i i don't I don't need as much help anymore, and they want to help me you know help like get the applications done for school and I was like you know I, and it's my ego too a little bit, and like my tiger ness comes through sometimes where I'm like Okay, yeah, I can apply for my like I can do my own kid's school application. Like, right? You know, thanks right. for all the help when we first got here, but like we're cool now. So
0: yeah. And so are they? Are they with you for like long term, or how does that work? Yeah, they're with you
1: for as long as you need it. And I think we'll likely have a social worker for all of Paige's life. And they're they're wonderful. So you know, I deeply apologize to any of the social workers listening. You're wonderful people who do wonderful work. Um, but sometimes your anger comes out in weird ways, and you place it on people who maybe don't deserve it. Um, and that's just part of the grief cycle so i hope they can understand that and i'm sorry.
0: Yeah, of course. I'm sure they I'm sure they understand it and go through situations like this all the time. Yeah. Um so the next thing i wanted to touch on was terminology. So for me, like even when i was promoting this podcast and telling people that we were going to be talking, i call it special needs. Um because, yeah, we were talking about special needs parenting, but I like that you explained it as exceptionalities. And like I wonder if you could just explain that and explain to people what terms they should be using versus not using.
1: Yeah, sure. I'd love to. So I say special needs mom all the time because I think it's the most commonly known. So I just want to put out there that it's not offensive to say special needs. It's just not perfectly accurate. So by saying special needs, you're implying that the child needs special things, but like really a child like Paige, she needs food, water, shelter, sleep, love, develop, like engagement, just like any other kid. So the needs aren't necessarily special, but she's exceptional because she stands out. Something stands out about her. And the way that I like to say it is like, she's doing great, except, you know, she can't run or jump yet. And Mm -hmm. she's in the first percentile for, for physical development. Um, so that's where exceptionalities come from. So you can say, you know, a child with exceptionalities, an exceptional child, exceptional parenting. I'm a, a teacher of children with exceptionalities. Um, that's a way that you can use the word. But again, I mean, special needs isn't going to offend anybody. So as we kind of migrate through that, you know, we give each other grace as we, we figure it out. But it is the language like um, words like retarded and dumb and lame, and idiot, and invalid, and spaz, those are the words that are a little more harmful, as I'm sure you can imagine. From my understanding, historically, where these kind of words come from are from a society where people who had any kind of um, developmental disability or delay or deformity were basically shipped off to private places to live where they could be hidden away from society uh, because they were believed that they could not contribute positively in any way or put in a good hard day's work. Um, So a word like, you know, idiot or dumb or retarded implies that someone's not smart uh, when really there are no absolutes such as smart or dumb or intelligent or not. We all are just a series of strengths and weaknesses and things that we can bring to the table. And it's just all about getting away from that black and white thinking and just allowing more space for everyone um, to exist and fulfill their potential.
0: Isn't it wild? Like So when you talk about people being sent away, um, it also makes me think of how we used to have the asylums for people that were mentally ill, like a similar kind of thing, right? Like you just kind of wanted them out of society. And so they had um, asylums or institutions, I should say. Um, So when do you know, like timeframe, when that would have been? Because I feel like it wasn't even that long ago. Okay. So it was between um, 1955 and 1994,
1: roughly like 500,000 mentally ill patients were discharged from state hospitals, so that's an American thing. And asylums ended in the late 1990s. So really, that was only in the last, you know, 30 30 years that we've made more progressive stands for people with disabilities. Um, and even one of the Kennedy family's daughters, Rosemary Kennedy, she had an intellectual um, disability, and she was sent away and um, is famously uh, known for having had a lobotomy to try to to fix her brain. Um, and there also was a series of women who were sterilized. Um, So we're not allowed to have children because the state didn't want people with disabilities to be able to reproduce.
0: It's wild to think like where we're at now. And I feel like people don't, like we don't really talk about that time and how all this stuff happened not that long ago. It's kind of not talked about anymore. Um, Next, I wanted to get into your experience with the grief cycle um, and processing Paige's diagnosis. Uh, So what did that look like for you? So um, we already talked about kind of like the shock.
1: So I was denying things. It didn't really click into me. So it definitely was like a journey and a progression of like, okay, there's something wrong in pregnancy, but maybe it will be okay. Oh, she's born. There is an issue. Maybe she won't need surgery. Oh, Okay. She needs surgery. And then it was like, okay, maybe that's it. She'll just have an eye condition. And then at 14 months, we found out that she had the intellectual disability and, and, and would be, um, you know, considered like a, a, just an intellectually disabled person. Um, so then anger kicks in. And like, you know, this was just me in my home by myself, but I was just kind of mad at the world. you know, and I felt really, why me? Like my resilience was really down. I, I was in person, I didn't have a super smooth childhood. My mom's awesome, but she had me when she was 16 years old. I'm a twin. You know, it wasn't super smooth. I had cancer at 22 years old. I had chemo. So I kind of felt like after that, like my life was supposed to be easy. Yeah. (laughs) And then then I had this wonderful little child who came to me and, and then had these issues. So I was like, holy crap, like, what did I do in my past life to deserve all this? And why me? And, you know, how do, you know, the worst people in the world can procreate and have typical kids and it's just not fair. And, you know, and this is just me at home on that leave kind of going, you know, having these feelings with within myself. Um, yeah. But then also, you know, between me and my husband, like something that I talk about with my friends um, who are parenting kids with exceptionalities is the difference between the way that they and their partner process things. Um, so, you know, I kind of feel for my husband because I went to the support group for the help, but he was home babysitting so that I could go to the support group. So he never really got to process things in the same way. Mm-hmm. And I found like when I had gotten to different phases of the grief cycle, like I was in like bartering and like Tiger Mom mode, he was still sad. And I I wasn't really good at being there for him mm-hmm. during that time. And, um, you know, we're on a much better page now at like just just being like open about how we're feeling about her or if like, things kind of trigger us like I call them. Like, sometimes things just sting. So, like, most of the time we feel really good about it. Like, the acceptance is there. But then sometimes, you know, I find at Paige's birthday parties when all the kids at the same age all come together. That's, like, the one time of the year that we really see how different Paige is. Right. And uh, and it's so fun and joyful and wonderful, but it stings still. Yeah. And that's no one's fault. You know, we're not going to avoid that. It's 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 wonderful, but, but it stings. So, um, so, yeah. And then you know, that was kind of like my anger, like I was kind of mad at him for not being at the same place that I was and not understanding and not being able to like support me in the way that I needed in that moment. And the thing with these journeys, whether it's, you know, cancer or something wrong with your kids, like, they're really personal journeys, like they're very internal struggles within yourself as a parent and as a human. And sometimes there's just nothing that anyone else can say, that's going to make it better. Yeah, you got to figure it out on your own.
0: And it's interesting that you say, Your husband and you were at different stages in the cycle, which I don't know if people think about that. You're going through your own journey. He's going through his own journey and you guys are not going to be at the same place all the time. So it must be very difficult to because obviously you're working side by side with with your husband and you're in different places and you need different things. And, you know, you might be having a good day one day and then he's having a horrible day and you're pissed because now he's bringing your good day down. And like, you know. Yeah,
1: exactly,
0: exactly.
1: Yeah, totally. And I mean, if you're not the primary caregiver, especially during the first year, like of mat leave or the first 18 months, you don't you don't see the same things. Like you're not the one driving the four hours of one day to the hospital and driving home in rush hour traffic and, you know, freaking pumping with your battery pump in the parking lot because your boobs are going to explode after like, you know, four hour appointments at the children's hospital, like stress out of your mind, you know, so you get home and like, how was your day? Like, oh, my God.
0: And so the, su- the support group that you mentioned, where did you find that support group? And, and what what was that?
1: Yes, that was my beautiful military community in Petawawa, Ontario, at uh, the Canadian Forces Base there. And it was the Exceptional Families Network that was put on through the Military Family Resource Center. And it saved me like Renee, it was so funny. Like I think it I would go once a month, but that was when I cried. So, you know, we talk about sadness in the grief cycle. Like I was always a little bit sad, but I saved my crying for like this support group. So I was like the mom who cried, you know, once once a month (laughs) at this group when it was my turn to talk. But um, typically there's some guided discussion like on how we were feeling, but it wasn't like poor me stories. And I think a lot of people shy away from support groups because they don't want to go and like be upset. That's uncomfortable for them or they don't want to share like emotions with random people that they just met. But those moms taught me everything about like navigating the system and all these cool resources and support systems that you can get and funding for different things. Um, So like in Ontario, there's um, special services at home. So you can get about a thousand dollar grant to like hire a resource worker for your kid to go to summer camp and for them to have like a shadow worker. So they taught me all this stuff. And, you know, when we talk about, you know, the, the bartering and stuff like it was really hard for me to accept resources at first, especially money. Um, It's really awkward. I don't know how you would find that, but just like letting these people into your life to know so many personal things and then to give you money,
0: it's really something to get used to. That support group, having even just being a new mom in general to have a support group, whether it just be a group of close friends or online, whatever it is, where you can be honest and talk about like struggles or how you're feeling and having them help with whatever it may be resources like it's invaluable and that's actually phenomenal that I wasn't expecting you to say that it was put on like through the military that that's uh pretty amazing
1: yeah so there's about 10 of us moms um most most of the moms had um children with autism Um, Seem to be very prevalent. And then myself and one other mom had kids with genetic disorders. But it's just the pure solidarity, right? And the camaraderie that you build, just knowing someone else that knows exactly what you're going through.
0: They can almost relate to what you're going through more so than your partner, right? Because, like, I don't know, there's something about being the mom that I think it's hard for partners to relate to all the struggles like you Mm -hmm. said like the breastfeeding the pumping like you're already thinking about so many things that your partner maybe isn't necessarily thinking about and it's just like the added layer of stress so
1: totally
0: totally and that's what I want like you know my friends to understand too and I
1: think they really do understand or starting to understand more and it's not to say that I'm so tough or great or like amazing but you know on top of like you said like healthy food for your kid, nap schedules, routine, screen time, school, like all these great parenting things. We have this other job on top of that. Um, so I have a friend, um, they're a military couple as well, the husband's military and she's a fitness trainer and they have a little daughter with congenital muscular dystrophy and they're dealing with the fact that their daughter has a limited lifespan mm. and where are they going to move and you know, adapt their house to be able to allow wheelchairs. Um, and how are they going to, like, they're super fit. Like they're these total CrossFitters, fitness trainers. So she's like, you know, how am I going to encourage fitness and sports with my older son when his sister can't do the same things? So just like all these different layers of considerations that go in and like the depth of like the concern, it's just, it can just be different sometimes. Yeah,
0: for sure. We wanted to talk a little bit about the difference between people being nice and people being kind. So when you mentioned that for this episode, what what is it that you're talking about when you say that? Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is just my interpretation, but I feel like, you know, nice is like a pretty
1: average compliment. Like most people are nice, okay? So what that means is like they're polite enough, look you in the eyes, maybe say one or two nice things, but, you know, that's about as far as it goes. But kind is like a deep internalization of like understanding other humans. So like you know, you're not phony, like when you meet someone, or it's a different kind of exchange, you, you just understand humans so much that you can peel back those layers as to why people are the way that they are, and give each other, you know, grace. And I always say, like, the best thing we can do in this world is understand one another. And this kind of relates to the civil rights movement as well. And like, you know, and and people with disabilities, like, sometimes this life is just not all about making good decisions and working hard. And sometimes, with you know, social constructs such as the American dream or like the old religious adage, like you reap what you sow, people think that you know if you work hard enough, you can have anything, or if something bad happens to you, that you deserve it, and it's not true <laughs> at all. Sometimes bad stuff just happens to good people. And I mean, for someone like my daughter Paige, like a lot of parents will say, like, okay, I just want my kids to be happy, and I say, okay, well, let's like unpack that, like. What does happiness mean to you? Because, you know, financially speaking, there's a really cool study out of the U.S. that shows that the average North American needs about 60 to 75,000 U.S. dollars to be happy, to like afford their place to live, maybe one trip a year, some kind of transportation and like a bit of fun. So like what happens when, someone like my daughter, she, I, I'm not sure what her future will look like, but it's probable that she won't be able to hold a job that she'll make that much money. So you know, I just want to challenge people to really unpack what they mean when they want their kids to be happy mm-hmm. or when they're teaching their kids kindness and like just really peeling back those layers of like why people get to the places in life that they get to. Does right. that make sense?
0: Yeah, no, for sure. The the one thing that I I know myself and I'm sure lots of people listening struggle with this as well, like you said, understanding the person as opposed to just being like superficially nice, um, you know, trying to understand the other person, coming at it from like an empathetic standpoint. But I always worry like worry that if I'm I and I guess that's the superficially nice. Like you don't want people to feel like you feel bad for them.
1: Yeah, like pity, right? Yeah. I don't want pity. Yeah. And if you pity your
0: children, they're gonna pity themselves and no one wants that. Right, exactly. And I don't want people to think that that's how I feel. I don't I don't even know how to explain it. I don't want people to feel like I feel bad for them, but obviously you want to be kind and show that you're thinking of them and like you're supporting them and what would you say to people in how to approach maybe someone that has a child with a genetic disorder or autism or any kind of disability?
1: Yeah. So I I have two things in mind, Ray. Like what you totally just touched on was the difference between empathy and sympathy. So sympathy is like, I feel bad for you, but empathy is like, I see you and I get you and I, and I feel yeah. where you're at. And that's the difference. That's one of my friend, Lindsay's big things um, that she taught me. So, you know, the empathy is what you kind of get from solidarity from other parents and other moms and other exceptional parents. And the, the sympathy might be what you get when, you know, someone gives your kid like a sad smirk, <laughs> like when you walk by, right. you know, in public. So, you know, all I'll say to you as a very, you know, socially conscious, wonderful person is that you already know how to interact with other moms yeah. and to be cool. Like you totally. And same with, you know, the moms at the park that are like, I don't know what to do if a kid comes up in a wheelchair. Like, you know how to act with other kids. You know how to have mom chat. So just do your thing. And there's not much more to it. Um, but the piece that I will add to that is just let the parents lead. So a lot of the times, exceptional parents, they're so used to advocating and explaining that like, they'll likely offer the information if they feel like talking about it. Mm-hmm. Right. And then if they don't, then you just leave it alone. But it also just kind of plays into like, why do we talk so much about the way other people look? Yeah. Oh, cute kid. Like, look at the blonde hair. Wow, they're so tall. Like, oh, her eyes are different. Like, can we just stop making comments with the way that everyone looks? Yeah. Just like live life and talk about more interesting things.
0: Yeah. I know for me and I'm like this in every single situation, I always worry about how the other person is going to feel. So that kind of like gets into my own head, you know? So then, like you said, like, you know how to behave. You're not, you know, like, you know how to interact with people, which I do. But I think sometimes I get into my head and like, oh, I don't want them to feel like I'm judging them or like I'm, you know, and this could be in any situation me getting a freaking coffee at the takeout at Starbucks I'm like so concerned about like oh I don't I don't want them to feel bad because they messed up my coffee order like yeah I'm just so like that but yeah I like your advice you know just be yourself and you know how to interact with people so yeah Renee stop but I can
1: tell you some things not to say like if that's easier Yes. Like, you know I think there's. so we've had the like the gamut of things and they used to trigger me so much because I was just a new mom and I had all these hormones and, like I hadn't processed it myself so I couldn't handle you know when people would say things so I would take her like you know through the grocery store and they'd be like oh what a sleepy baby because she her eyes always look closed right yeah. But again, like just commenting on her, her physical appearance. Um, one time I was in a Walmart, it was like five 30 on like a weeknight. Like it was a really stupid idea to go to Walmart because she was in a mood and she was hungry. Um, but the cashier was like, Oh, is she autistic? And I was just like, well, I'm not offended by that, by the way. Like, cool. I was just like, no, why do you ask that? And she's like, Oh, well, she just seems like sensitive to the lights and just kind of, you know, my daughter has a kid in her class with autism. So I think she was really genuinely trying to bond with me, like over the fact that like, maybe I have a kid with autism and like there's a kid in her kid's class, but I was just like, you know, it's just like not the way, like just to offer like a diagnosis. um, It didn't sit nicely with me. Maybe someone else wouldn't have been as offended. Uh, And I wasn't offended that about autism. I want to make that clear. Um, But like Paige, she just was a grumpy toddler, like at 5.30 p.m. on a weeknight. That's all it was. Yeah. Um, Our pediatrician at the Children's Hospital here, she's awesome. I'm sure she's got like 40 years of experience. But Paige hates. She's been poked and prodded by doctors her entire life. So, like, and she has some mm. sensory issues. Case there's like she hates having her ears cleaned. She hates having her nails cut. She has a really hard time with like things all just people coming at her with like tools to poke and prod her. Yeah. Um. So she always has a tantrum at the pediatrician's office. And this lady always asks us, like, so what are your thoughts on discipline? Because you know, like, some parents, especially these kids, don't believe in discipline. I'm like. She doesn't need discipline. She's scared. Like, she doesn't like this. Like, she
0: has sensory issues. So that always makes me laugh, but... Like, what is um, discipline with a toddler? Please explain to yeah, me. Yeah, right like, you know. like, smack her because yeah. she cried because she's scared. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. Was like, old school mentality. Um, and then, my friends with the daughter with um, congenital muscular dystrophy, she's got this really cool, like, mini yellow, like, stand up wheelchair, like, for little kids to get her upright. And my friend was taking her for a walk. And I guess a guy walked past him on the path and was like, lazy parenting. What? Yeah, can you imagine? And, like, these are, like, you know, the guys that an a military officer and the wife owns a gym and they're, like, these crazy fit crossfitters and their kid has congenital muscular dystrophy. <laughs> it said lazy parenting. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that's the stuff not to say. So when I say, like, a wonderful person like you, like, you already know what to say, Renee. Trust me. Like, you know what to say.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay, last thing. I was wondering if you could – Or off the top of your head, are there three resources that you would recommend to parents? And it could be anything.
1: Yeah, totally. So number one, get yourself a support group. Just like push aside your ego and your fear and just go bond with some other people who are going through the same thing as you. Because even if you don't want to talk about your feelings, you're going to find out about wonderful resources that the province might offer that you can take advantage of for your kid. And who would want to ignore that opportunity? Yes, um, number two, the resource is to get deep with yourself. And like I said, it's such a personal journey that's separate from your partner and separate from your friends and family. You know, I know for me, um, growing up, I had two rules. Like I couldn't get pregnant and I had to go to university because my mom had a super young and that was what she wanted, you know, us to view as success. So for me, I thought success was you had to go to university and that's how you get a good job and that's how you live your life. And like, you have to play sports to be well-rounded and like learn how to be a teammate so having Paige just broke down all these just constructs that I had. And, you know, I thought I'm pretty like a kind, open person, but, you know, I, I do have some A-type pieces of my personality. So, you know, for the parents that are struggling with these diagnoses and wrapping our heads around what it means for our kids, um, and then even grief in general, like the loss of an expectation, and this can happen with anything. Like maybe your kid goes through a divorce when they're 35. Maybe they get fired from a job. Maybe they have a mental health disorder that doesn't present until their early 20s, which many of them do. Like, just, like, get deep with um, your own perceptions of success hmm. and, like, the reflection. Like, your kids are not a reflection of you. They're their they're own human beings, like, on their own journey and just detaching yourself um, from that. So, sorry, I'm ranting a little bit, Renee, but my own point is to get deep with yourself. And then my third piece of, like, advice or tip is just to, like, let yourself feel it. So, like, the four base human emotions are anger, sadness, fear, and happiness. And they are all valuable. They're equal in value. And they're all part of, like, your biological wiring. So if you don't let yourself feel it, it's going to come out in other weird ways. Um, you know, especially anger. Like, you're allowed to be mad. Like, you're allowed to be mad that your kid has this struggle in their life. You're allowed to be sad that things are going to be a little harder for them. You're allowed to be sad that maybe your retirement is going to look a little bit different now than you ever pictured because you're going to have an adult, an adult child at home for the rest of your life. Um, and don't try to slough away your emotions with like being grateful to be pregnant or being grateful for great Canadian healthcare. Like, you can be grateful and mad and sad all at the same time, and you are normal and you are human.
0: Yeah, I would assume that a lot of people, you know, going through anything, whether it be, it could be anything, like even people that aren't parents, you kind of want to not have the negative emotions. So you try not to have them and then only um, present the positive. Like you said, like, oh, I'm so great, but I'm so grateful. And, you know, I can't come I can't complain because of this, and it could yeah. be so much worse. And it's like, no, 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 like that's not the point. You're allowed to have these feelings, totally. And I think you know, in our society, we try so hard to not have the negative feelings, but then that prevents us from working through what's actually going on, and totally. you know, which is not going to help us in any any way, absolutely. Oh, geez, Louise. So, you, I wanted you to talk a little bit about your because you are a certified life coach. And I wanted you to talk a little bit about that and kind of what you help your clients with and where people can find you. Oh,
1: absolutely. Thanks for the opportunity. Um, so, you can find me on Instagram at Coach Jackie P or my website is CoachJackiePower.com. Um, I like to, um, present life coaching as a bridge between psychotherapy and having a mentor. So a coach is not necessarily someone who goes back in the past with you, but helps you take inventory of where you're at and pushes you forward toward goals um, and any kind of blockages that you may be facing. Um, So I work with a lot of high performing adults. um, And one thing that we talk about is how, you know, you get to a certain level of success in life and you kind of stop asking yourself how you could do better Um, So it's just this wonderful world of self-improvement and self-actualization in a really positive and supportive way, but it's also a lot of accountability. So we don't just talk in our hour-long sessions once a week. Um, I give practices that myself and clients agree upon um, to go forward. So that could be something from, you know, implementing self-care. It could be an activity to get rid of negative self-talk. And we've got tons of really cool positive psychology tools to offer um, but yeah, I would say if you're feeling stuck or that you know you could be do, do better in a certain way um, or you just need some help or someone to talk to you, uh, a life coach is a really, really, really cool tool um, available to you.
0: Thank you so much for talking to me today. This was uh, a topic that needed to be discussed and I'm so happy that I got to talk with you about it. Do you have any last last words for the people that are listening? I just want to say thank you to Renee. Like, thank you,
1: Renee. You've done such a wonderful job of bringing moms together and just teaching us to like have fun with motherhood and be raw and open about the non-pretty moments. And I think there's so many moms right now that are home alone on mat leave with partners away working or with COVID-19 and you have just created this wonderful community of humor and info sharing. And I'm just so grateful to have found you on Instagram. So thank you so much for everything you do.
0: Don't you guys just love Jackie? She's the best. Um, Such a pleasure to talk to her. Uh, If you want to know more about Jackie, you can check out her website or her Instagram account. I'm going to put all her details in the episode notes. Of course, if you haven't already, please rate review and subscribe to this podcast, wherever you are listening to it. You can follow me, of course, on Instagram and on TikTok at the.mom.room. My blog is renearena.com. Next Friday's episode is with Lindsay Ronga, and we are talking about how to um, help your child build a healthy relationship with food. It is such a great conversation. I'm so excited to share it. As for Tuesday's solo episode, I have no idea what that's going to be about yet, as I never do. I just wanted to say that this month's uh, book club book is Little Fires Everywhere by Celeste Ng, and I didn't even think I was going to be able to finish the book this month just because it's been so busy and we have the new house stuff going on. And although I've had a sinus infection, I haven't been as productive in other areas, But I have definitely been able to lay down and read a book, so I'm almost done that book, and it is so good. I'm not usually a fan of novels, fiction novels, and this book is so good. I'm excited to finish it, and then I'm going to watch the TV series as well, because apparently that is also amazing. So if you haven't read that book, I highly recommend it or just watch the television show if, if that's more your style. Again, thank you so much for listening. I hope you guys have a fantastic weekend and I hope your children sleep tonight.